this is Steve with Life Worth Living. Today we're going to explore the topic of worship, what worship is, and more specifically, what worship of God is. We're going to look at worship from eight different angles, from different scriptures in the Bible and stories in the Bible that are really going to give you, I believe, some insight into worship that you may not have had before. So listen in and let's learn more about worshiping God. So I looked up just on Google, what is worship? And on a Christianity.com, it explains how worship is an expression of my love for God and all he's done. And so that's the basic definition of worship. It's just responding to God's unending love and worshiping him for what he's done in your life, what you've seen he's done in the Bible and in other people around you. That's what worship is. That's why we worship. And this article said something so cool. It says, when we're living a lifestyle of worship, it keeps us in a grateful perspective and a joyful heart. And so worship is the key to being joyful all the time. That's the key to have a positive perspective, a holy perspective is to be worshipful and that will always produce joy and gratefulness. And in the Bible, it says what worship is, and that's in Romans 12.1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So that's what Paul says. Your true and proper worship is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And in the Greek on Bible Hub, I looked up the, the meaning of mercy. And another word that can be used for mercy is compassion. And I thought that was cool. You know, you can read a verse so many times and it kind of just becomes stale kind of, but we need to always look up meanings to refresh and the Holy Spirit will do that. But I thought it was cool. We offer ourselves because of God's endless compassion. He's always compassionate, always merciful, and that's why we offer ourselves to him among many other reasons. But when you think about that, why wouldn't we surrender all to him? Because he's always giving out compassion. So it's an easy option when we surrender to that. And I also was wondering, what is a living sacrifice? What does that mean? And this um, article also explained how it's giving up all claims and rights to ourselves. It's giving up all those um, preferences, all those desires that may not be sinful, but you know God has a better option. And so you're giving all that up to God and you're saying, I am completely available to you, Lord Jesus. That is what a living sacrifice is. And it's so cool after... My grandpa spoke last Sunday night. I was just unplugging the lights and stuff. We weren't, we were done praying. But I felt like the Lord gave me such a beautiful revelation of what surrender is. And I felt like he told me surrender is sweet. And all of a sudden I felt such joy, such peace. And the enemy wants us to make um, surrendering seem like a drag, like you're going to lose everything if you surrender to Jesus, but that's not the case. You gain everything when you surrender to Jesus. There's peace, there's joy in surrender, so that's what we need to do. And I was also thinking surrender is hard when we forget who we're surrendering to. We need to remind ourselves we're surrendering to the Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're surrendering to, so it becomes desirable when we know who we're surrendering to. So I have Eight or seven points on what I found worship is. So point number one, worship is surrender. That's what worship is. 
when we offer our body to God, it means we're, we're going to please God with our actions, with our thoughts, with our words, decisions, likes, activities, friends, anything that goes along with living, that's what we're surrendering to Jesus. We're saying, I want to live my life for you, and I want to be pleasing to you. And in Luke 9.23, it talks about how we are to pick up our cross daily. And I get discouraged sometimes whenever I surrender to Jesus and then I slip and fall and mess up. And I'm like, oh man, I, I thought I surrendered. But surrendering is a progressive thing. It's supposed to be a daily thing. And that's what uh, Luke said, pick up your cross daily. We're supposed to daily surrender. And we take steps towards Jesus. And it's not a once and for all thing. It's a daily, minute by minute thing. And Colossians 3, 15 through 17 explains what a surrendered life looks like. And I wanted to read verse 17 first. It says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and in dependence on him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And 15 and 16 say, Let the word of Christ have its home within you as you teach and admonish and train one another with all wisdom, singing, psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so point number two, worship is living a life that is focused on Jesus. And it's in verse 17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything for God. But it's impossible to do that if we're not depending on him. So in order to worship God in all that we do, we must be focused on him, which will lead us to depending on him for everything we do. And as I was just preparing for tonight, I was thinking surrendering to God will equal us receiving his power. So we give up our lives, but we also receive his power. He doesn't leave you dry. No, he fills you up with all his power once you surrender to him. And so when we're focused on Jesus, we'll be looking for every opportunity in ways we can please him. That will be our ambition, our drive. And so the actions of doing all for Jesus isn't and can't be done in our own strength. It must be done through dependence on him and the Holy Spirit. So trusting in God will lead to living in his strength and power. That's the result of trust and focusing on him is his strength and power in our lives. Um, in Luke 4, 8, it says, Jesus replied to him, It is written and forever remains written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the two words that stuck out to me in this verse was worship and serve. And I looked up the Greek for both of those and um, serve, another word for that in the Greek was worship. So serving and worship go hand in hand, and that gives you a better visual of what worshipful lifestyle means. It's serving God. That's what it is. And um, so we want to live a lifestyle of worship. And on the other side of this worshipful service, of this life of service is joy, abundance, overflowing. And that's what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 11. He said, I've told you these things so that my joy and delight may be in you and that your joy may be made full, complete, and overflowing. And this, right before Jesus said this, he was saying to obey him. And there are many reasons why we should obey Jesus, but he knows it's for our good. <laughs> he knows there's abundant joy when we would just obey him and set aside our selfish desires because there's abundant joy in obeying Jesus. And I love what that missionary said a few weeks ago. It's always for our good and for his glory. That's why we obey Jesus. In Psalm 27, 4, 
The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. So point three, worship is living in the awareness of God's presence. And David, the psalmist who wrote this, realized that um, this version that I read was the NLT version. And usually this says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But I always read that and I wondered, what does it mean to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? But this version kind of opened my eyes to it says, delighting in the Lord's perfections. And so whenever we're worshiping, we're so consumed with God's perfections instead of our failures, our imperfections, our weaknesses, we'll begin to look more like him, act like him, and live like him the more we're focused on his perfection instead of our imperfections. And so that really blessed me. But on that point three, living in the awareness of God's presence, uh, God's presence is so addictive. Once you taste, like during worship at church or in your room or prayer, wherever you are, God can meet you and reveal his presence anywhere. But once you taste it, you're like, wow, nothing in the world can give me this. God's presence is so precious. It's so such a treasure. And so you'll just want more. That's what David realized. Um, living in and for his presence in, involves being all consumed by God's perfections, power, and unending love. And so the key to live in that awareness of his presence, him being all around you all the time, is to just be focused on him, being focused on his perfections and his beauty. The Pursuit Bible states, Biblical worship is acknowledging that God is the king and results in living lives in light of that truth. The most common words translated worship in the Bible means to lay oneself before God. And I love that um, a lot of the times when we're worshiping here at another worship service, I'm striving to work up feeling God's presence or worrying about something or just always asking God for something is not really enjoyable when you're doing that. You're so focused on your problems when you're worshiping. But really, worship is meant to be a restful thing. It's meant to lay oneself before God. When you do that, you're laying down every problem, every fear, every question or lie in your head. You're laying it all down before the king who is on the throne. And that's what worship is. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the website, I, I believe it's the Pursuit Bible, opened my eyes to this verse. I've read this verse, but it really uh, gave me a new understanding of it. But it when, it, when Jesus said, you must worship in spirit and in truth, it doesn't mean spirit or truth. It means spirit and truth. We have to have both when we truly worship Jesus. And the reason why we have to have both, there's many reasons, but one they pointed out was that without the spirit, we'll worship in legalism. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes our worship alive, who reveals things to us, who helps us to feel his very presence. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important in worshiping God. And it's being led by the Spirit and knowing the joy that comes from fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit keeps us from becoming legalistic. But worshiping without the truth causes lawlessness, where you're led by your feelings and your emotions. And sometimes 
that doesn't lead to good things. Our emotions are sinful naturally, and so we need the truth to ground us while we're worshiping. So the Holy Spirit makes our worship alive, but the Word of God grounds us and keeps us stable as we worship, and that's why both are vital in worshiping. And so the thing we bring to spirit-led, truth-filled worship is an obedient, willing heart. That's what we bring. The Holy Spirit brings his presence, revelation, and the truth. But all we do is say, I'm available. (laughs) I'm willing. I'm open. I don't want to strive. I don't want to fight. I'm here for you, Lord Jesus, and I, I, I worship you. And in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the Pursuit Bible states, to truly worship in spirit and in truth is to love God and to keep his commandments. And so point number four, worship is obedience motivated by love. And this is that lifestyle of worship we're talking about. In order to live that worshipful lifestyle, we must be obedient to Jesus. That is a vital part. And Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And this echoes the greatest commandment Jesus gave in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we won't want to serve any other God, any other distraction, any other way of the world when we're loving Jesus with all that we are because we're receiving his love for us. Um, And so point... Oh, and it's cool because as I was preparing for this, uh, the Lord showed me four examples in the Bible of worshipful lifestyles. And so the first one is found in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they entered the furnace. And so point five, worship is refusing to compromise, refusing to compromise to worship any other thing but the Lord. And so in verse 12 of Daniel 3, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So these three men refused to worship or even pay attention to this golden thing that King Nebuchadnezzar had created for everyone to worship. They refused to pay attention to it. They knew, like Psalms 118.6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so when we're worshiping God, we have more of a fear for him than we do for men and what they can do to us. And that's what these three men had. They weren't fearful. I'm sure they were, they're human, so they weren't perfect. But they chose to fear God and the consequences of compromising their worship to him than worshiping a golden image. And so the, three, the king threatened them, and this was their answer in verse 17 and 18. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these guys were basically saying, no matter what you do to us, we are not going to change our mind. And that's what we need to be like. No matter what we're faced with, no matter what threats are coming our way, we need to be like, no, I am worshiping the God who created me, who created you, and I'm not compromising on that. And I thought it was interesting how they said, God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not compromising. They didn't, it didn't seem like they heard directly from the Lord that he was going to deliver them, give, like, save their lives from the fire. But they said, even if he lets us die in this fire, we'll go out worshiping Jesus. Um, 
And so that's when we worship, we surrendering to his sovereignty. That's what they were doing. They're like, whatever God decides, we're being faithful to him because he causes all things to work out for the good of those who love, love him. And they knew that God was greater than the furnace. Even if they died in it, they knew God is greater. And so when we refuse to compromise in our worship to God, he will meet us in the midst of our fiery trial. And you look at the story, God did meet them. They, the king said, wait, didn't we put three in there? <laughs> he met them. God met them in the fire. And that's, there's rewards when we refuse to compromise to our Lord. And he met them in the midst of it, and he delivered them out of it. It said their clothes didn't even smell like smoke, and their hair wasn't even singed at all. And so there's wonderful rewards if you look at it. The result of their uncompromising worship was that God was made known and glorified in that the three men prospered in the land. They were elevated and protected by the king after that. And most of all, God was glorified and he was made known and feared more than the golden image. And so my second example is 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. And point six for worship is worship is being bold and courageous. Um, in verses 10, or 8 and 10, um, Goliath would come out every morning from his Philistine army and taunt the Israelites. Every morning he would come out and throw lies. Every evening he would throw out lies to them. And this would cause the Israelites to be very fearful and very dismayed. Like it was not, they weren't being uh, fearless. They were very scared. And during this time of Dave, uh, Goliath coming out and attack, attacking them with words, um, David was just a mundane shepherd tending his father's flock. He wasn't doing anything significant. It seems he was just doing mundane tasks, delivering food to his brothers. And in verse 23, while he was delivering some lunch to his brothers, he heard Goliath's taunts for the first time. Imagine him giving his brothers food, and then he hears this voice out there taunting the Israelites. And notice David didn't get scared. He was, like, offended that this huge giant was offending the Israelite army. And um, in verse 26 through 30, David was getting curious and began asking questions about this giant. And one of his brothers tried to quiet him, reminding him, you're just a shepherd. You need to go back and do the little tasks you, you have right now. But David didn't allow his stage in life to define him. He didn't allow, even though he was just a, a shepherd, to limit what God had called him to do. And so don't let your occupation or stage in life or whatever you're going through to limit what God is calling you to because it's far greater than anything you could ever imagine. And in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's courage fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. He didn't see Goliath as any other giant. He just saw it as, I'm going to defeat him. Why are you intimidated at all by him? And so I was thinking the difference between David and Israel, the Israelite army with him, was that David didn't see Goliath as an unbeatable giant. He saw his God as an unstoppable God. And so David's focus was on God, not on the enemy, not on Goliath. And that's how we need to be. If David was focused on Goliath, I'm sure he would be with all the other Israelites, fearful because he would be focused on him and himself knowing I can't defeat him. Um, and so Saul, the king, told David, you're only a young boy. Like, you, you probably are going to be killed if you go out. 
And in verse 36, it says, he responded, he said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted and defied the armies of the living God. So he didn't see Goliath as any different from the problems he had faced before. He knew that the same God who helped him in the past with his past struggles would help him with this present giant in front of him. David had the courage because his worshipful focus was not on his achievements, strengths, or abilities, but on his God who is presently powerful. And so that's why David was victorious. He was not focused on the enemy, nor was he focused on himself, but he was focused on God who is with him. And I just wanted to read um, verses 45 through 49. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the corpses of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord um, does not does not save with the sword or with the spear, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us." When the Philistine rose and came forward to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and it stuck, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone penetrated his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. <laughs> I love that. Um, the thing that really sticks out to me in that was that when Goliath rose up to go against David, David also rose up and went right for him. He didn't start backing up and running away. No, as soon as Goliath got up, David got up also and got prepared and got ready to to kill him. And so that's how we need to be as Christians when we're worshiping God in our daily lives, whether it's work or church, whatever we're doing, we need to be bold and courageous like David was. And so the only way we can start courageously running toward our enemies to destroy them is to first have our eyes fixed on God. Our eyes must be on the Lord and not on anything else. That's why it says to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Because any other thing will destroy your faith, not perfect it. And so my third example is Acts 16, where Paul and Silas were in the prison in Macedonia. And just some context, um, Paul had received a vision from a man in Macedonia saying, come here, I want you to come and minister to us. So they were being obedient. They heard from the Lord to come to Macedonia. But when they were there, some things happened and they ended up being beaten, tortured, and thrown into prison. And I don't know how this worked, but their feet were fastened with chains and not their hands. So I don't know if they were hanging by their feet or what, but it sounds pretty uncomfortable. But um, in Acts 16, verse 25 through 26, it says, But about midnight, when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so powerful that the very foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And so Paul and Silas had just been through torture. They're beaten up and thrown into the darkest, lowest 
prison cell, but they refused to let this experience compromise their worshipful devotion to God. They didn't let it, even though I'm sure it would have been really easy to just become negative. They chose to worship the Lord. And my point seven, I thought, worship is a choice. And you know, we're always choosing something. We can choose to be negative. We could choose to be positive. We could choose to worry. We could choose to hate. Whatever it is, we're, we have the choice always in front of us if we're going to be on the negative side or on the positive side. And so they chose to worship God. Um, and it isn't contingent on our circumstances, on our feelings, or other people. And the result of their worship was that it was a shield of protection. Notice when we choose to worship God in the darkest of times, we'll start to sense his wonderful, intimate nearness and protection around us. And it, notice that it not only brought freedom to them, but to the other prisoners as well. And so our worship is contagious. When we choose to worship God and have our eyes on him, it's going to spread to other people like, wow, if they're going through that and still worship God, I can do it. And so it's a contagious thing. Um, they, so they didn't allow their situation to dictate whether or not they would worship. They chose to worship God regardless of their circumstances because he's always good, he's always perfect, and he's always present. And this is so cool. Liberation comes to us and others when we choose to worship God above our impossible situation. I've done this before whenever I've felt such darkness over me and hopelessness and whatever it was I was going through. I was like, no, I'm choosing to worship God, even though it went against everything in me into feeling self-pity. But I chose to worship Jesus. And man, there's so much freedom when we choose to worship God at our darkest hour. In verse 28 through 30, but Paul shouted, saying, do not hurt yourself. We are all here. Then the jailer called for torches and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the reason why Paul shouted, don't hurt yourself, is because it, the jailer didn't know that they were still in there, and if they, they had escaped on his account, he probably would have been killed because he was supposed to guard them. But even, like, I was just thinking, maybe this jailer was one of the men who beat Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas cared more about the jailer's life than their freedom from the prison. They said, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And they had the option to run away, but they didn't. And just thinking, I don't know why God allowed them to go through the prison, because Paul... Yeah, Paul knew God could have called him to Macedonia, but maybe this was the reason he allowed all this, because the jailer's life was saved and his whole family. There was like a miracle after this whole thing. And so Paul and Silas' decision of choosing worship not only brought earthquaking liberation, which literally happened, but God saved the jailer's family and probably other prisoners as well. So it brought more people into the kingdom because of this. And my last um, example is found in Exodus 33, and I wanted to touch on Moses in the tent of meeting. Um, so I was re reading through this chapter, and in verses 5 and 6, um, it explains how God was, God was telling the Israelites, I'm not going to go with you on this journey. I'll meet you at the end, but I don't want to go with you because you've been so rebellious and so stiff-necked. I'm going to pour my wrath out if I go with you. And so the... Um, in this, many, uh, they, 
the Israelites had to repent of the ornaments. And I was looking up ornaments. I was like, what, is, what does that mean? And this Christian website revealed how these ornaments that the Israelites were holding on to and worshiping were actually a lot of the jewelry and gold that came from Egypt when they were leaving. I guess they took a lot of the Egyptian treasures with them. And this was actually a lot of the material they used to make the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain. This is what they used to make the golden calf. And instead of knowing the God who was present and in front of them, they chose to make a golden calf to worship. They were really looking backwards to Egypt for their salvation. And so they experienced miracles from how God delivered them from the land of Egypt, but they chose to create an image out of their past slavery to worship instead of God who was with them. And this article was revealing how they didn't use all of the gold on the idol, but they wore some of the jewelry still. They didn't um, give it all for the idol. And it also revealed how they had constant reminders and temptations of their past instead of focusing on God who had better, newer plans for them. And so by wearing the Egyptian jewelry and worshiping the calf, instead of having a fresh, new perspective on God who did wonders for them, they kept looking down at these temptations that they were once stuck in, and they were worshiping those things instead of God. And this article quotes, The fact that God asked them to physically strip themselves of their ornaments was an outward sign of what he wanted to do in their hearts. There were to be no daily reminders of what they may viewed as their salvation of Egypt. And I wanted to ask you, and I'm asking myself this, what things people, experiences, habits, behaviors, or whatever it may be, are we allowing and looking and worshiping to as our salvation instead of God? What are we worshiping? What are we upholding so high that we can't even see the God in front of us because we're so consumed by bondage from the past? And I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking of Lot's wife. God had made a path of freedom available to Lot and his wife to escape Sodom before he destroyed it. And Lot was like, I'm looking forward. I do not want to get back in the past. But Lot's wife was questioning, do I want to go forward with God or back to Sodom? And she chose Sodom because she looked back and she was destroyed. And so what are you looking back to tonight? What are you holding on to instead of looking forward to what God has for you? And the one we should be worshiping. And so while the people were repenting and humbling themselves from all these worshipful items, Moses pitched his tent of meeting, and that's what I wanted to close with. Point eight, worship is an encounter with God. Um, in verses 9 and 10 in Exodus 33, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the doorway of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. All the people would rise and worship, each at his tent door. And I love this so much because um, just thinking how when we take one step towards the Lord in setting aside time, setting aside our busy schedules and thoughts or whatever it is that's consuming us. We set all that aside. We say, no, I want an encounter with God. And that's what this tent was. It was basically a, a prayer room, a prayer closet. It was outside of the army so Moses could get away and have his time with the Lord. And um, he set aside his busyness and just notice how as soon as he would enter the tent, God descended. God took a step toward him. 
And when we're desiring to meet with the Lord and hear from him and be refreshed by him, he will meet us there. We just have to set aside that time for him where it's just you and the Lord uh, receiving that refreshment that we all need so badly. So when we encounter God and we experience his presence, people will notice and want it as well. Because you look at the other Israelites, they would watch Moses walk out of the camp to meet with the Lord. As soon as they would see that cloud descend, they would stand at their tent doorways and worship God too. And so worship is contagious. When we live a lifestyle of worship, it's contagious and freeing and liberating. So we're going to sing some more worship songs But I wanted to recap on the four examples of what points do you guys need and I need to re-emphasize in our life, re-refocus on in our lives. Is it maybe have you been compromising in a certain area in your life, maybe doing worldly activities or um, whatever it may be? You know in your heart if it's compromising and going against the word of God. Take it to the Lord as we worship and start asking the Lord to help you to refuse to compromise your worship to the Lord. Or maybe instead of being bold and courageous, you've been fearful and discouraged. And if that's the case, maybe you're focusing too much on your enemy, too much on your giant, and too much on the thoughts in your head. Start, begin begin to focus on God, and boldness and courageousness will begin to overflow. And... Number three, if you're cho- we have a choice to worship or worry. And if you feel a dark fog over you right now, maybe you've been choosing worry more than you've been choosing worship. And so really just think about what are you going through and what have you been choosing? And lastly, if you really just want an encounter with God and you haven't had that time of refreshing, just ask yourself, am I too busy? Am I doing other things instead of setting a time setting aside time for the lord and so just ponder those things as we worship him